KMTT. This is KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzay Torah, the Torah podcast, and this is Ezra Beck. According to the server, the company that provides the home for the audio files which you're listening to, we have about 300 people a day who are listening to each year. Based on that, which is a very, very good number, I'm very happy to see that number, Based on that number, I would like to repeat a request I made last week that everyone who hasn't registered for the newsletter should please go to the website www.kimitzion.org That's www.kimitzion.org and register for the newsletter. It's important because we will have announcements, there'll be changes, There'll be advice, there'll be things which we can share with each other, and I would really hope that everyone who is actually listening, and the numbers are very gratifying, should also please register for the newsletter. We've only sent out one mailing to that newsletter in the last three weeks. It's not going to fill up your inbox, but it will be very useful for us and for yourselves as well. Today is Tuesday, Chavdalid Tevet, and today's Shir will be given by myself. It's the weekly shir on issues in medieval Jewish philosophy. This is shir number four. This will be the last shir that will deal directly with the topic of the proofs for the existence of God. The shir will be 29 minutes, and afterwards I will be back again with the daily halacha yomit. Last week, we examined the Rambam's proof and the kind of proof that the Rambam offers for the existence of God in the beginning of the second chilek of the Moreh Nebuchim, the proof that's known in philosophic terminology as a cosmological proof. I contrasted and compared it to another kind of proof called the teleological proof, which is based on finding signs of design, proofs of design within the world, from which one can infer that there is an intelligent designer. As I pointed out, uh, teleological proofs are not found for God, for the existence of God, in medieval Jewish literature. The proof does exist to prove other things, or to demonstrate other things, or to lead to certain results, to lead one to avat Hashem, or bitachon Bashem. Once you know that God exists, and therefore you recognize that He is responsible for all sorts of phenomenon which impinge on our lives, then one develops a certain attitude towards him. But the proof is not used in medieval Jewish philosophy, unlike uh, later Christian medieval philosophy, to prove the existence of God. There is, however, a sort of intermediate kind of proof. It technically is a cosmological proof that is found in Jewish philosophy and found in the very earliest of uh, books about Jewish philosophy. It's found in Lafsadjigon, the book of Emunot Videot. This proof is a proof based on creation. The Rambam criticizes this kind of proof very, very strongly in the first Chedek of He does not mention Rav Sajigon by name. Uh, instead, he refers to a school, a group of Arab philosophers called the Mutakalum, or the Kalam for short, in the Hebrew translation of the Mount of Uchim, they're called Hamid Dabrim. 
But the position that he ascribes to the Ka'lam is in fact the position of Asajagon, and the Mammon was undoubtedly aware of that. He just didn't wish to mention Asajagon by name. The proof is a proof based on the fact that we can prove that the world is created and therefore there is a creator. To our not particularly Aristotelian ears, this will sound very similar to the Rambam's proof. The Rambam proved that there is a first cause, and Asajagon proved that there is a creator. But the Rambam is very insistent on the difference. Because the Rambam, among other things, claims that in, in lines of a proof, he has no proof that the world is created. Aristotle's belief that the world is eternal cannot be disproven. The Rambam says that he does not accept it because he thinks that Aristotle's proofs for the eternity of the world are also incorrect and therefore the question has no proof one way or the other and therefore he accepts the testimony, the simple testimony, the simple pshat of the testimony of the Torah that the world was created. But Emunah should not be based on creation, which he thinks is basically unprovable, because the Munah has to be provable. We discussed this in the first shiur a few weeks ago, that for the Rambam, Emunah equals Yidi'ah, faith equals knowledge, and knowledge is that which can be proven, which is proven, which I know because I cannot believe, intellectually believe the opposite. I know it to be true because I have apprehended its truth. Its truth forces itself upon me. The Rambam denies that creation can be proven. But Sajigon thinks that creation can be proven. So from that point of view, this might be a relatively minor argument. However, the Vamam's opposition, I think, is much deeper. But Sajigon, the, the, the brings a number of, of variations to the proof, but they more or less go on the assumption that if something exists, it has to have a beginning. It could be that its beginning is found in something else, but then that thing has to have a beginning in the end, there has to be a beginning for all things, and therefore things were created. But if they were created, then why did they suddenly begin to exist? You need to have a cause, which is a typical Aristotelian claim, you need to have a cause to change non-existence into existence, and therefore there must be something which always exists and can be the cause of the sudden existence of other things, the original beginning of existence of other things, and that thing we, we call God because he is the creator of the world. As an argument, I think this is what most people more or less believe. This is what is sold on street corners. I think it's what is taught in, in, in to the extent that philosophy, <laughs> that philosophy is taught in kindergartens. It's what's taught in kindergartens. Logically, there are a lot of flaws in it. If one reads modern science, and they talk about the Big Bang, or they talk about steady state, previous theory, but no one ever asks, but how did that take place? There doesn't seem to be a need to answer that question, matter per se could very well have been eternal. Logically, it doesn't seem to bother anybody anymore, at least on, on a sophisticated level. But Osajigon thinks for a number of reasons which he brings down that you have to have a beginning, and if there's a beginning, there has to be a beginner, someone who caused the beginning. What's more important for our point of view is that the difference between the Rambam and Osajigon is not merely a way of phrasing the object of what is first, a first cause in some vague metaphysical sense, or a he who actually brought things into existence. It runs much, much deeper. And this can be found by the use that of Sajigon puts his proof. Immediately after proving that God is the creator of the world, Sajigon immediately 
deduces that we have an obligation to be indebted to God, to be grateful to God, because He's created us. This kind of conclusion doesn't exist in the Rabbah. And I think the Rabbah would even object to attempting to draw such a conclusion from a philosophic proof. The first cause of the Rambam is a, a reason why the outermost sphere in the sky, in the heavens, began to revolve. Or revolves. Began is the wrong word. Revolves. And all other motion is somehow found in a chain at which the unmoved mover, God, is at the beginning. But that doesn't in any way impinge a, on, on, on your lives. It doesn't create a moral obligation between you and God. Moral obligations, according to the Rambam, are found in the Torah, they're found in prophecy, they're found in revelation. They're not found in philosophy. Philosophy is about eternal truths. But in Masajigon, and this is either the advantage or the disadvantage, I think to most of us it would appear to be an advantage, Masajigon's proof of God provides a God who is responsible for everything that we have in our lives which at least on first glance, and this is Vasaji Gon's first use of it, are good things. We, we are able to breathe, we have bodies, we have food, we have water. God created the water, God created the bodies, God creates the air in which we breathe and gives us the ability to breathe that air. We are totally and 100% and beyond indebted to God because everything we have ultimately derives from Him and not from anywhere else. And therefore there's an immediate connection between morality, between relationship. One has a moral, obligatory relationship with God which derives from the proof of God. In that sense, Vasadya Gon's proof is similar to the theological proof we described last week. The difference being that the theological proof is based on individual, unusual or striking occurrences. You find a pattern. You have to first recognize the pattern. Vasadya Gon is not particularly interested in any particular feature of existence. That's why it's cosmological. It's based on the fact that things exist at all, not that they exist in a particular way, that they're red or green or organized or, or seemingly purposeful. But on the other hand, the immediate result of Sajigon's proof is to place us in a very specific relationship with God, one which Sajigon himself uses to great purpose throughout uh, throughout his book and it provides the starting point for an entire philosophy of religion for an entire religious life based on based on that understanding now the particular conclusion of Sajigon draws is in fact interesting is it in fact true that we would agree to, do, do most Jewish philosophers, do most Jewish thinkers do most of us think that the primary religious response the primary religious emotion or state of mind is one of gratitude and indebtedness by beginning with creation and using creation as the starting point for all of his religious discussion Sajigon has defined the most basic relationship between man and God. Man stands before God as one who receives everything from God. I don't think anybody would disagree that that's a very basic 
very basic emotion, very basic and necessary response of man before God. But the question is, is that the only or the most primary response? So for instance, Rav Sajigon, being one who has to give a philosophy of Judaism, continues and says, well, we have to observe mitzvot. Why do we have to observe mitzvot? Because God created you. And if God created you, you have to do what he said. I can see many people arguing that you have to do mitzvot because God commands it, not because we are indebted to God. Even if we weren't indebted to God, but God is truth. God is law. God is the mitzvah. And even if God, let's say, freed you from, from any obligation, he says, well, you don't have to do it because, because you owe me. But it could very well be that you have to do what God says because it's the truth. Just as we have an inborn feeling that we should do what is moral because morality obligates. Not because we are in debt to morality. Morality has served us well in the past and therefore we should do what morality wants now. But simply, that's what morality means. It's the right thing to do and it obligates a moral individual. God obligates religious individuals in a similar manner. I should point out, I don't mean this is a criticism of Sajigant Sarati, I'm just pointing out the difference. There's a Pasuk in the Torah which seems to say something even stronger than Rav Sajigan. Pasuk says, And the usual understanding of that Pasuk says that you are my servants, you are my slaves, to translate it more literally, because I took you out of Egypt where you were slaves to the Egyptians, and therefore now you're slaves to me, and therefore you have to do what I say. It's sort of like the feeling that I think most cultures would agree. If, if you're drowning and I save you, you're supposed to do what I say. I sort of, you sort of belong to me because I've, I've saved your life. If I've given you life, if I've created you, if I've done everything, everything there is about you, then all the more the indebtedness exists. So it is a, it is a proper idea, and I think it does have roots in the Torah, but again, the Sajigon is totally dominated by this idea because it formed the starting point of what is famous as a very unified theory. He begins with the proof of God, and he attempts to follow through on that proof and continue it to all areas that he possibly can. Parenthetically, I want to point out that there's an argument between Nafsajigam and the Rambam as to whether everything can be proven. Because the Rambam thinks that you can prove a number of things, not too many. Basically, about God, you can prove that he exists, that he's one and has nobody. And that's more or less the end of proof. There are many, many other truths which can be learned only from Revelation. Now, Sajikan has a basic position that says that anything true, can, anything that is true can be proven. And therefore, this perhaps influences Rav Sajikan to create a more unitary system. Everything that is going to be true about Judaism should derive from the basic proofs. But that also puts them into a particular kind of ideology. Everything, in the end, revolves around my indebtedness to God. Because God has been good to me, therefore, I have to serve Him. Point. This opens you up to the argument, well, suppose someone feels God has not been good to him. The problem of evil, something which we will discuss in the future, some people suffer, and they believe they suffer unnecessarily. So God has not been good to them. I think what Sajigon's answer would be that in the balance, you really still can't complain. He made you. He gave. If you're alive, he gave you life. If you were alive for 10 years, he gave you those 10 years. You're talking about the difference between existence and absolute non-existence. There are moral thinkers who believe that the possibility that existence is less of a value than non-existence 
can arise, perhaps in certain extreme cases, but there are certain kinds of existences, people whose lives are a net loss. They have negative value. I don't know if one could defend that position. It's a commonplace in Judaism to say that we think that life is worth more. The bare existence of life is worth more than than the particulars that that uh, that, that 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 are its content, and that's why we value life among all things. But I'm not sure that we would defend it until the very very end. There are at least case arises in the Gemara. It becomes part of modern medical ethics, whereby at a given point, it's justified to say that for this particular person, it's better to die now than to than to exist in his pain and suffering. That doesn't mean his whole life was negative. But but morally, the question could arise because Rav Sajigon is saying you have to obey God because you're indebted for all the good he's given you. In order to say that, you have to have a basically optimistic view of the good that God has given us. For sure, I would defend that. Rav Sajigon, I think, would state it explicitly. But again, you're, you're, you've been forced into this, one quarter corner, you've been forced into this position by basing everything, by saying religion means gratitude. And is gratitude the most basic religious, religious attitude? Here I think that a question could have indeed arise, is there a difference between gratitude and devotion? Is piety, is service of God, a form of gratitude? The Rambam for sure would say no, not merely because he doesn't accept the proof, but even when the Rambam does talk about what is one's relationship with God, not basing it on a proof, he does intend to emphasize gratitude. He talks of love and fear, where love is a form of admiration, and fear is a form of reverence. God is great. God is wonderful. God is, is smart. God is in, in intelligence itself. And one who perceives that is immediately filled with great feelings of love and a desire to come close, as well as feelings of awe and reverence and, and a, a fear. And therefore, he takes a step back. Those are the basic religious positions, religious emotions, religious responses that the Ramam talks about. I don't think Ramam would disagree with gratitude. Once you realize that God has been good to you in the morning, then you say, you have to, there's, there's a Esrei, in which we thank God for all the many things he's done. But when the Ramam talks about, let's say, in the Torah, so he talks about love and fear way before he talks about anything resembling gratitude. And love and fear itself is not based on the love of one who has been good to you, but the love of one who is extremely admirable. It's the love one has for a great person, not necessarily who's done anything for you, but you tremendously admire his greatness, his intelligence, his wonderfulness. You could admire painting in the same way. It's sort of that kind of feeling of... of reverence based on admiration rather than reverence based on gratitude. And that's how the Rambam defines Ava when he talks about uh, uh, one's relationship, one's emotional relationship with with God. It is of course perfectly possible to have a proof like of Sajigons, but not necessarily draw the conclusions. Just as the Rambam does not base the internal life of a religious person on the proof of God, or at least not on the proof of God alone, and similarly later Jewish philosophers who have different proofs, but they define, they, 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 they develop a religious persona not necessarily as deriving automatically from the proof. You could do the same thing with of Sajigons' proof. Of Sajigons is a proof. It does imply gratitude, but I have more to say about religious life than, than merely gratitude. Sajigon is in a 
is in a certain a kind of thinking where he really wants to derive everything from the proof because he believes, similar to the Rambam, but more extreme than the Rambam, that the knowledge of God is the basis for all religious life. On the other hand, Lafsajigon is not uh, does not agree with the Rambam because he doesn't share the Rambam's enthusiasm for knowledge itself as the ultimate religious value. On the contrary, Lafsajigon thinks that gratitude is the ultimate religious value. If you have gratitude, you're a religious person. If you don't, you're not. Whereas for the Rambam, if you know God, you've achieved the goal of religious life, of all human life, and if you haven't, then you haven't. There is a, a famous a parable told by the Rambam which has a lot of implications and we'll, we'll come back to mention it a number of times in the future but the Rambam describes a palace in the palace lives a king he lives in the finest room, the throne room of the palace the palace is surrounded by a courtyard, the courtyard is surrounded by a wall in the wall there's a gateway the Rambam says that most people most people, most religious people, most people who are observant, are found outside the wall and cannot find the entrance. They haven't even found where the entrance is. A minority of them find their way through the entrance of the wall and are in the courtyard but can't find the entrance to the palace. A minority of those people have made their way into the palace but can't find the right room, and those who manage to find the right room, only a minority can actually behold, get to see the king on his throne. Since the Rambam is an intellectual elitist, he admits, he freely admits, that even among those who observe the Torah, only a small minority can achieve his goal of philosophic knowledge of God. This is not true for Asajigah. Although Rav Sajigon presents a proof, the proof is there to help those who are impressed by proofs. On the other hand, the Torah teaches all these things without a proof. And Rav Sajigon says, if I can prove it, why do I need the Torah to tell me the same things? The answer is, for those who don't have the patience for the proof, for those who wish to do it more quickly, to help those who might be at, a, a misled at some point, confused by the intricacies of proofs, to keep them on the straight and narrow path. In other words, the proof itself, knowledge of the proof is not a religious value. The proof has has pragmatic value. It teaches you the truth, which if you don't have the proof, you might not reach the proof. And also tells all of us who are intellectuals that we're right. We've proven that which we believe. But to believe is not to know. To believe is to believe. And therefore, for Sajagon, anyone who has this basic Jewish value, this basic religious value of recognizing that God is good to him, which you really can't get up in the morning and say brachot and daven without realizing that that's what that's what your life is based on. Anyone who has that value in some sense is on the right path. You can have more, you can have less, but, but religious people share this value. According to the Bible, religious people don't necessarily share the ultimate value. They've only done the introductory work to allow them with a much greater effort. They've arranged their life in such a way that if they make the effort and concentrate, they were able to become true philosophers and, uh, and meet the goal, the true goal of human existence and of the religious end of the religious life. So you have this what perhaps might appear to be the strange dichotomy in the Rambam between what can be proven and the value of proving and the importance of knowledge and the everyday religious life. Religious life cannot be proven 
On the other hand, religious life does not guarantee that you will achieve the goal of religion, the goal of knowing God. In Usajigon, on the contrary, you, at least theoretically, can prove all the values of religion. And two, acting out the life of religion is a great step, shares totally in the values, the ultimate values of the religious life, the religious life itself. I think that on instinct, we would all tend to prefer Rosajigon's approach, irrespective of the, the logical uh, questions or intricacies of whether the proof is a good proof or not. As I pointed out, none of the proofs are going to make it past modern scrutiny. But I, I would like us to consider, at least to appreciate, what the Raman was trying to accomplish. It may not be our cup of tea, and it may not have succeeded, but had the Rambam's endeavor succeeded, he indeed posits a tremendous and radical and far-reaching thing. Because according to Sajigon, if you're grateful to God, you've, you've achieved the ultimate. But what is that ultimate? The ultimate means leading a proper life. You have the proper moral qualities of gratitude. The Raman has a theory that says that if you know God, you are one with Him. Because to know God is, for reasons I won't go into today, to know God, according to the philosophic proofs, is to achieve a degree of union with that which you know. What the Raman calls achtut hamaskil vahamuskal, the unity of the knower and the known. So the Raman, in what would appear to be a very radical statement, it sounds almost mystical, and the Raman has been either accused or praised for being a kind of mystic, not a regular mikubal, but a kind of mystic, because the Rambam's ultimate goal is union with God. And the Rambam claims he can explain how you get to Olam Haba, because after you die, your mind still exists, and it has as its object God, and therefore it's one with God and eternal like God. For Sajigon, the goals would appear to be far more modest. And indeed, Sajigon says that Olam Haba is God's way of rewarding those who did the right thing. If you've shown gratitude towards God and obeyed his mitzvot out of gratitude, then God gives you reward. You get to Olam Haba. He pays you off, so to speak. Because according to the Rambam, you haven't merely merited Olam Haba. You've, you've achieved it. You've eternalized your own existence by achieving union, intellectual union, with God. Again, is the Rambam's theory defensible? Does it make sense on philosophic terms? These are questions we're not going to discuss. But I, I would, I would at this moment, but I would like you to at least appreciate the grandeur of what the Rambam was trying to, was trying to do. The Rambam has an attitude, he doesn't always express it explicitly, but the Rambam has an attitude that says about someone like Sajigon that his philosophy is I'm going to use a word that is obviously foreign to the Rambam or Sajigan, it's Balabatish. Now Sajigan basically comes down and says, God tells you what to do, you should do it. And if you do it, you're a good boy. And he draws everything into that picture. Whereas the Rambam says that truth exists, God exists, you can find him and you can you can you can get him, you can you can acquire the truth. You can know the truth. The haskil, to know, to rationalize, is a form of acquisition. And to know God is to 
I'm careful with the word. I'm, I'm a little bit trying not to use the word, but I can't think of any other word to use. You've acquired God. You've made your mind a receptacle for godliness, for the object. Mentally, of course. But mentally for the Ramam is real. So the Ramam's aspirations in the religious life would appear, at least in the Ramam's way of thinking, to be far greater than those of Avsajikon. To do that, he paid a tremendous price. He basically divorced the accomplishment itself, knowledge of God, from the particulars of religious life. Keeping Shabbos is not knowledge. It allows you, it helps you know. Putting on tefillin is not knowledge. It it puts you on the path to the right direction. But again, the accomplishment itself is always beyond the actual mitzvot you do. Whereas according to Avsajagon, of course, every religious thing we do has true and ultimate value because we're expressing all the time our gratitude and our obedience and our relationship with God is being expressed all the time by every single mitzvah that we do. We will see in a later lecture the attempt by Rav Chastai Kreskas to basically combine these two uh, attitudes to show that every mitzvah that we do is a fulfillment of the goal of religious life but that the goal of religious life is indeed union and 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 closeness and even acquisition of of godliness and not merely performing according to his will and finding pleasure in his in his eyes with this we are concluding at least for the time being our discussion of the proofs of the existence of god we will continue next week with the next what i believe is the next obvious topic and that is hashkacha pratit hashkacha god's providence divine providence specifically the word pratit means individual, individual providence over people. I think all, nearly all Jewish thinkers in the Middle Ages assume that that is a principle of Judaism, but how they define it and how they explain it will, will indeed differ. That will be our topic for next week. Today's Halachayomit, we're continuing in Sukkot we mentioned last week, that you're not allowed to be masik, to have an interruption during Pesukei Zimra between Baruch She'amar until Yishtabach. Stringing together a number of halachot, the Rif concludes you cannot interrupt yourself from Baruch She'amar till after Shemun But what does it mean to interrupt yourself? So it's not really clear from the classic sources. The post can more or less agree that it shouldn't be any worse than what the Gemara, what the Mishnah says about Kriyat Shema. We basically have a similar structure. There is brachot before Kriyat Shema, brachot after Kriyat Shema. They all form a, a, a single unit. And there we have a principle that says that it's divided into two, betocha prakim, within a section, within a bracha, or the prakim of Kriyat Shema, or bena prakim, between one section and another. So there are two categories, mipnei kavod, mipnei What it basically means is that for something which you are obligated to say, part of davening, so you're allowed to, you're allowed to be mafsik, and psukei zimra is, can't possibly more, be more strict, be more severe than birkot kriyat shema. The shulchan aruch, the mechaber paskins, let's say you're saying baruch she'amar, and you say faster than the chazan. As soon as you finish, before you begin hodu, the chazan finishes. Do you say amen to his bracha? The Mechaba says, you can answer Amen to the Bacha of the Chazan. Some folks can wonder about this, because let's say 
you made a Birkata Mitzvah. You made a Bracha on the Lulav. And then someone else made a Bracha on the Lulav. So you wouldn't be allowed to answer Amen because the Amen would interrupt between the Bracha and the doing of the Mitzvah. What's more, if you did so, you'd have to make a Bracha again because the Bracha has lost its focus. It's lost the thing to which it relates. But the fact that Paskins here that you can answer Amen to Baruch Shamar of the Chazan between your Baruch Shamar and the beginning of Sukkot Zimrah, we see that there's something there's something different. So the the truth is the obvious answer is that indeed it's different. The different the word Hefsek means different things in different contexts. The Hefsek, the interruption between a Berkata Mitzvah and the Mitzvah, similar, not exactly the same, but similar to the Hefsek between a Berkata Nenin, a Bracha and food, and the food. That sort of a hefsek basically makes the bracha into an orphan. The bracha no longer has anything to which to relate. The whole meaning and purpose of the bracha is to be a bracha on the mitzvah or on the food you're going to eat. If you have an interruption, the bracha no longer relates to that food. If you then want to eat again, if you want to eat it all, you have to make another bracha because you have no bracha for this food. Same thing for the mitzvah. If you made a alantilat lulav, then you had an interruption. Then when you want to take the lulav, you have to make a bracha because the bracha you made has floated away. It has no connection. But psukhet is not the same kind of thing. The bukat baruch shamar is not a bracha that relates to the particular psukhet the way that a bukat mitzvah relates to the mitzvah. If you remember the language of the riff that I quoted, the riff said, Chazal said we should say Psukei de Zimra in the morning. And then they instituted a bracha before and a bracha after. The brachot are there to form a framework, to form a unit where the brachot are the boundaries and the content is the praise, the tehillim, the Psukei de Zimra. But it's not as if this bracha, its only purpose is to have an effect on the psukei zimra we're going to say to permit you to eat it or you know, I'm giving an example from Bekot HaNenin or, or, or to declare it to be a mitzvah. The, all the psukei zimra are shevach, are praise of God and the bachot are also praise of God. You have a section based on tilim and you have a prayer, you have something which is formulated by, by Chazal. So you shouldn't be mafsik because the whole thing forms one unit. But to say that if you're mafsik between Baruch Shemar and psukei zimra, the Baruch Shemar now has become meaningless. There's nothing to go on. It's floated away into, into the net of the world. Uh, that's, not, that's not the same at all. And therefore, the Bechaber Paskins, that you can answer Amen. Now, there is another factor here. Namely that, in order to be a half-sake, it has to be a different topic. The Gemara says, concerning Bechot that after you make Hamotzi, it's not a half-sake to tell somebody to bring the salt. Even though you talked. But since bringing the salt is a necessary part of eating, you have to have salt when you make a, uh, when you eat bread, and you made bakata matzah. So it's not a hefsek because it's not another topic. It's not thinking or talking about something else. So since the topic, the content of sukkah is is praise of God, so the pasuk say, well, saying amen to someone's bracha is not in contradiction to that, and therefore it's not a hefsek for that reason. These are two separate. These are two separate reasons. Um, the difference would be that the the Mishnah Bura, he doesn't exactly pass in this way. He quotes an opinion and it says, and according to this, you have a problem. He says, suppose you were masik, not for Amen. In the middle of uh, Sukkot Zimra, or let's say right after Baruch Shemar, 
you talked about something else. You discussed the uh, the sports scores or the stock market. So the Mishnah Bura raises the possibility he's in favor, but doesn't exactly say it's correct that you have to say Baruch Shemar again. And that only makes sense on the comparison to Berkot Mitzvah. Now they said that doesn't appear to be true here. I don't think logically it's even true. And so even though you shouldn't be mafsik, but if you are mafsik, you don't lose the bracha. You've affected the unity of the unit, but you haven't said anything wrong. Most poskim really conclude that there's no need to repeat the bracha. And in any event, halacha lamaisa, once there's a machloket, so repeating a bracha is problematic in and of itself. It's a bracha levatala if you don't have to repeat it. So anytime there's a safek, there's a doubt whether one should repeat a bracha or not, you don't do it. In this case, it really would appear to be more logical that you don't have to repeat the bracha because although one should not be mafsek, the hafsek does not uh, nullify the meaning of the brachot. Halacha uh, la what almost all posts can say, is that any recitation of tefillah, now, as I'm talking, is just talking between the two friends is a, is a hafsek, you shouldn't do it. A recitation that has to do with tefillah, if it's obligatory, including answering Amen to any bracha you hear, which is a chiyah, one has to answer Amen to a bracha. And surely, Kedusha, or, or Yeheshmei Rabbah, Vakadosh, or anything along those lines, so one should do things which are not really obligatory, although they are customary, for instance, Baruch Hu Baruch Shema, after hearing God's name, or the introductory and, and um, uh, other parts of Kedusha, like Nikadesh, or Lumatam Baruch Yomeru, that's not actually part of Kedusha, it really belongs to the Chazan, but we have a custom that the whole congregation says it. So those you shouldn't say, because you don't have to say them. Because you don't have to say them, they would be considered a hasik. Again, according to the second reason I gave, that anything that's praise of God can't be a hasik because it's not in contradiction to the theme, so you really could be much looser about what you could answer to. To say, Baruch Hu, Baruch Shemot, to God's name is, is praise of God. It shouldn't be in opposition to the content of Sukkot On the other hand, Sukkot Zimra Apsukim. They are all taken from Tanakh. They're basically taken from Tehidim. The, the, the core is taken from Tehidim, plus some other psukim. And so other sort of recitations might be a hefsek. famous example of this is the minag to say Shir HaMalot after Yishtabach, before Baruch during a Sajjumet Shuvah. So some poskim were worried about that because it shouldn't be mafsek between Yishtabach and Baruch Shema. So one suggestion was, well, let's move it forward. We'll put it before Yishtabach. It's a parak in Tehillim. So it'll be another Sukkot Zimah. But the answer was that, well, you're not saying it in order to praise God. You're saying it in order to basically ask for something. You're appealing to God. You're using the words of David HaMelech, not as Shirim B'tush Bachot, as praise and song and Hallel, but to say, Mimamakim Kratich HaShem. We're appealing to God because these are the days of Tshuva. And therefore that suggestion was never uh, accepted and people went back to the minhag of indeed saying it after Ishtabach, which is the, the weakest link, as I pointed out. The reason why you shouldn't be mafsek between Ishtabach and Baruch is the least uh, impressive uh, reason. It's the, the place where you have the most options, really, of being uh, mafsek. Halach al-Maiz, the Pesach, say that any dva mitzvah, you can be mafsek there. And so the minhag is also a good enough, a good enough reason. That's it for today. Tomorrow, on uh, Wednesday, we'll have the weekly share, the weekly mitzvah of HaRav Binyamin Tabori. Till then, this is Ezra Beck in Gush Etzion, wishing you a cold tov, 
This was KMTT, Kimitzion, Tetzei, Torah, Udvar Hashem, Mi Yerushalayim.